my wife has an affectionate nickname for me. She calls me the robot because I'm so out of touch with my feelings. I have a really low emotional IQ. Like, I don't know what I'm feeling. I don't know why I'm feeling it. And something traumatic will happen. Something upsetting will happen. And my wife is uh, expressing her emotions very strongly. And I'll be like deadpan. And she's like, do you feel anything? Why are you such a robot? I'm not very in touch with my emotions. And when quarantine came around and I was disconnected from community so much, what I realized was I'm a pretty emotionally unhealthy person. And that sent me down a path looking at the biblical idea of lament. And we're going to start talking about that over the last few weeks. And I think there's no better time given the racial tensions in our country right now as some of these long lingering issues are coming to the surface. Uh, there's no better time to learn about the spiritual discipline of lament. So I need this. It's going to be beneficial for me, but hopefully you find it beneficial in your own life as you learn to deal with suffering and to find spiritual value in community and shared ache and pain. Now, I do my best to hide from pain and suffering. Like, if something sad, I try to run away from it. If something looks like it will upset me, I try to get away from that because I'm like, hey, the world's sad enough. Why would I enter into someone else's sadness or why would I intentionally put myself in a sad position? I mean, one of my most uncomfortable moments is when I'm with somebody and they begin to cry because I don't know what to do. And my natural tendency is how can I deflect away from the sadness or the pain? And so sometimes, you know, somebody's sad and I'll try to tell a joke. I'll try to bring up something else to distract them to move out of that place of sadness. Um, that's not emotionally healthy. There's a place when you enter into the sadness with somebody, you put your arms around them and you weep with them. But my natural tendency is to run away from things that are sad or painful or difficult to profit, uh, to process. Now, I'm not alone in that. After all, I'm a millennial and study after study after study have shown that millennials are not good at dealing with their pain, not good at dealing with tragedy, not good at dealing with their emotions. I mean, in World War II, 17-year-olds were shipped off across the planet to face concentration camps and to fight Nazis and uh, today a 17 year old gets a bad social media post comment and their whole life is ruined. You know there's a whole different series of emotional ability to comprehend and deal with emotions there and um, as a millennial study after study has shown that my tendency is to medicate pain or medicate sadness with entertainment. There's a reason the video game uh, industry has blown up into billion, billion dollar industry. It's always been there, but now it's a force like never before. Things like Netflix and Hulu are huge. We have phrases like um, Netflix and chill, right? Because why? The millennial culture has said, I'm gonna entertain myself in order to not think about what's painful or difficult, what's emotionally unpleasant in my life or in my family or in my world. We've learned to just disconnect from it, to just separate ourselves out so that we don't have to deal with the painful things. Um, there was a study that said that the average millennial has more anxiety 
than a person in the 50s or 60s who would have been institutionalized for anxiety. Like we're dealing with higher levels of anxiety on a daily basis than people who would actually go into full-time, long-term treatment for anxiety in the 50s and 60s. And the study suggested that because millennials don't deal with the pain or the sorrow or the difficulty of what they're facing in a moment, it ends up slowly leaking out over a long period of time because there's no cathartic release of grief. Like they don't deal with something hard and then it's over and they move on they end up slowly leaking this painful anxiety over a long period of time because they've distracted themselves from pain or distanced themselves from something sorrowful instead of facing it. Now, um, my tendency, like I said, is to not deal with pain, to run from it just like other millennials. But there is evil in me. There is evil in my community. There is evil in my world, and running away from it doesn't make it go away. Running away from it doesn't make it better. Running away from it doesn't make me better. If we don't enter into our grief, if we don't lament, it ends up slowly poisoning every joy in our lives. And so this spiritual idea of lament is entering into your grief, getting to the bottom of it, and finding a way to climb out on hope getting to the other side of it, going through it, instead of getting stuck in it. Now, the Christian tradition doesn't sugarcoat human pain, and I'm so grateful for this. This isn't a sappy, feel-good religion where it's just like, hey, hearts and roses, pie in the sky, we never talk about the hard things, we never deal with the difficult things. That's not Christianity. Christianity is very real world, very boots on the ground, kind of gritty, realistic um, in its explanation of the human condition and then also about pain and suffering. It doesn't run from pain. It doesn't suggest a good numbing agent. It doesn't say, just pray and you'll feel better. It suggests confronting pain head on, honestly reflecting on it, and somehow in the midst of that, God will meet us and give us hope. Not when we run from it, not when, but when we, with shaking hands and trembling hearts, actually embrace it. We step into it. We don't run from it. The Bible calls this spiritual practice of entering into our grief and passing through our grief into hope the process of lament. Now, Dr. Tim Mackey says that biblical lament restores a sacred dignity to human suffering. It makes the pain that you're experiencing actually a spiritual discipline. It's not just something that's happening to you, it's something that's making you more like Jesus. Now, he identifies three elements to spiritual lament. Lament is, first of all, protest. It's drawing attention to a problem, like right now, all across the world, we have protests drawing attention to the problem of systematic racism. Um, and then it's also about processing emotion. You don't always realize everything you're feeling either, like me. You don't always know everything that, uh, why you're feeling something. Like sometimes you're angry and you don't know why. With me, it's almost always I'm hungry. Like if I'm angry, it's because I'm hungry. Darby's learned that now and she's like, here, eat this bacon, you'll feel better. Bacon always makes me less angry. Um, and then finally, lament is about confusion because you're wrestling with the character and nature of God. God says that he's good. What you're going through is very, very not good. 
And so you're like, how can a good God not intervene and make this go away? How can a good God not make this pain less? How can a good God not fix this? What's going on? Now, over the last few months, we've been reading a psalm every day on our podcast. We've been recording it. And I started this just because in the middle of COVID, I was like, I don't know what to do with myself. Like, I'm preparing online messages, but emotionally, I'm very distraught. I need something. And uh, I began just reading the psalms, and I thought, this is helping me. Maybe it'll help others. So I started to record a psalm every day. But as I'm reading the psalms... Um, and refreshing myself on them. I've read through them before, but I've forgotten how raw and real and honest they are. I mean, they say things in the Psalms that you think that you would never find in the Bible. I mean, many times they feel betrayed by God. They feel abandoned. They feel invisible. They've been disappointed and decimated, and they're crying out. They're lamenting. Um, The Christian and Jewish faith include these brutally honest prayers to God. Listen to some of these that come from the Psalm. God, why are you hiding? Why don't you do something about this? Don't you see how bad this is? I fasted and prayed and it brought me nothing but insults. Why have you abandoned me, God? Where are you? And this is the last one. I mean, it's just so raw and real. God, are you drunk? Are you asleep? Why don't you hear us crying out and help us if you're really there and awake? And on and on and on. You might feel nervous about that. Like, can I really talk to God like that? Can I really say those things to God? God preserved those things in his word to help us understand spiritual lament. God isn't afraid of your brutal honesty and disappointment with where you are in life or what you're facing or what the state of your world or community is in. Part of lament is frustration at God for not intervening, for not making this go away for putting you in a place where you have to face it. But God is never afraid of your honest criticism. He's big enough to take it. He's not insecure. He's not like, oh no, they said something mean to me. That's not God. He can handle it. He's big enough to both take your criticism and he's loving enough to actually listen to it and care. Now, it might feel weird at first talking to God like this, but God always loves honesty more more than hypocrisy. He wants you to be honest with him. He doesn't just want you to be fakely religious and say things that you think he wants to hear. He wants to hear what's really on your heart and mind. And guess what? If you're moved about evil in the world, so is God. You're actually aligning your heart with God when you are moved by evil in our world. Now, the Bible is full of people saying how disappointed they are in God. I mean, like over and over again, we see people who are praying and they don't see the result they wanted or it comes in an unexpected way or they're facing things and they're like, God, where are you? I mean, this is a part of the human condition and the spiritual journey is this wrestling with the hard things in the world and the good things about Yahweh, the God of Christianity. Now, the Bible gives us a pretty simple um, process for lament. And here's how I've broken it down. And we're going to talk about this over the next few weeks. Protest, starting like, this is wrong. This shouldn't be this way. Grief, where you just enter into the emotions of what you're feeling. And then there's always a turn. You read these psalms of lament and they're like, things are terrible. It's no good. It's this. I can't believe I'm in this situation. And then there's always a point where they're like, but I know God. 
but I know this, but this is happening. This is starting to turn. Something is starting to change the turn. There's always a turn in lament. If you don't have a turn in lament, then grief consumes you. But if you do have a turn in lament, then you begin to move into hope and ultimately into blessing. Now, when I lived in Tennessee, I lived about an hour and a half from this uh, park called Fall Creek Falls State Park. It's this great waterfall in Tennessee. Um, there's been a couple movies filmed there just because it's such a unique location. And I think I've got a picture down here for you to look at. And uh, some Saturdays I would get up early and I would drive out there and I would hike at Fall Creek Falls. I love that place. It was just a quiet place. There were rarely, it was like in the middle of nowhere, so there wasn't a lot of people there, especially early in the morning. And um, it was just a quiet place for me to get alone and hear from God. And so it had these high peaks and low valleys. And I would hike from one side down the valley and up the other side to the overlook on the other side where you could see the falls. And uh, many times when I'm hiking down, gravity's pulling you down, but you have to still be careful that you don't twist an ankle or fall on the loose rocks. And then you get to the bottom and there reaches a point at the bottom where you're like, okay, no longer am I going down, now I'm starting to go up the other side. And it's almost harder to go up the other side even though you're closer to the end because now you're having to walk uphill, you're having to climb over some boulders and meander back and forth. And But when you finally get up there to that other side and you get the huge view of the valley and of the falls, it's all worth it. And I just started thinking about that as I looked at this pattern of lament. You start here, you start down into grief, then there's a turn and you start up into hope and then at the top there's this blessing. It reminded me of this hiking trip. Um, so let's just talk about these elements real quickly. First of all, protest is where we put words to our pain or our disappointment. Grief is refusing to run from the pain or distract yourself with addictions like sex or drugs or alcohol or sugar or entertainment to numb the pain. So often sadness is seen as something bad in our society, something that we need to run from, something that we need to get rid of. But sometimes sadness is the only response to something evil, something costly, a loss. If you go to a funeral for a loved person and your loved one and you're not sad, that's not right. That's the wrong response to something evil, to some loss. Sadness is the right response to when something horrible has happened or something good has been taken. Um, every psalm and lament in the Bible has a turning point. I just talked about that. At the bottom of grief is this moment where you start climbing out. You don't always know where that bottom is. Sometimes it feels like there is no bottom and you just keep going down, but there is a bottom. You'll find hope in God not by running from grief, but by entering into it to find a way not to escape it, but to find a way through it to another side. If you run from grief, grief will always be chasing you. But if you get to the bottom of grief, you'll always find a turn so that you can start climbing up in hope. Now, according to the tr Christian tradition, on the other side of grief, when you start to climb up in hope, the other side is blessing. Now, the word blessing gets thrown around in our society a lot. You're like, hey, I just got a $10,000 a year uh, raise. Hashtag blessing. That's not how the Bible uses the word blessing. 
blessing always means a deeper, richer, more full experience with God. When you're blessed, that means you're, you're getting to understand and experience new levels of who God is. In America, we often worship money and health, wealth, and because of that, we assume that blessing means more health and wealth. But in the biblical context, blessing always talks about experience a deeper, richer, more full um, experience with God. If the Christian life is learning how to live and love like Jesus, we should look to him as our example for lament. Jesus never ran from someone else's pain. He always ran towards it. He entered into it and experienced it with people. After all, Yahweh taking on human form to absorb all sin and death into himself on the cross is the perfect example of not running away from someone else's grief, but actually entering into it so that they're not left alone. In Luke 19, 41 through 44, we have a picture of Jesus lamenting. And over the next few weeks, we're going to look at different people uh, practicing this spiritual discipline of lament. In verse 41, it says, As he approached and saw the city, this is Jerusalem, he wept for it, saying, If you knew this day, what would bring you peace? But it's been hidden from your eyes, for the days will come on you when your enemies will build a barricade around you. They'll surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you and your children among you to the ground. They will not leave one stone on another in your midst, because you did not recognize the time when God visited you. Now, in Jesus' lament here, as he's making the long climb up to Jerusalem, Jerusalem sits on a high hill, and there's this long, meandering road that goes up there. He's looking up at the city, and he's overcome with emotion. And uh, I think there's some simple principles for us to emulate here as we learn to become students of how Jesus lived and loved. First of all, Jesus saw, then Jesus wept, and Jesus' desire was to bring peace. Now, when Jesus saw Jerusalem here, he was so moved, not only because of the current confusion of the people, they were like, is Jesus the Messiah, the special person who's going to restore the relationship between God and man, or is he not? Our religious leaders say he's not, but he's doing these things, I don't know. He wasn't just weeping over that, he was weeping over a prediction that he had that Jerusalem was going to be destroyed by the Roman Empire. In fact, they were destroyed shortly after his death. They started a rebellion, and they were wiped out by the Roman Empire. And he's looking ahead, and he sees this. And he's like, if they reject me today, if they reject my way of living, my way of loving your enemies, they're on an unstoppable road. Uh, they're marching towards an inevitable conflict with Rome that will ultimately destroy them. And so he looks out at the city, and he sees all the hurt and all the death and all the tragedy, and he's overcome. Just because something isn't hurting you doesn't give you the right to ignore what is hurting others. I mean, that's what Jesus was all about. You can't call yourself a student of Jesus if you ignore the pain of other people. He always made other people's pain his business. That's what the cross was all about. He was making your pain and my pain his business. I'm not going to lie. I don't like watching videos of people being murdered in the street. I don't like watching videos of police knocking people to the ground and punching them repeatedly until they're a bloody mess. These things disturb me, but they should disturb us because they're wrong. 
Like, we shouldn't run away from these and say, well, they just don't exist. La, 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 I'm not listening. You know, like when you were a kid on the playground and somebody's like, hey, Alex, you're fat. And I'm like, la, 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 I'm not listening. You know, holding my hands over my eyes so I don't see the tragedy and the evil in our world. That's not the way of Jesus. Yahweh didn't cover his eyes and ignore us. He didn't stop up his ears and refuse to listen to us. But he came into our world. He entered in. He dwelled among us. He incarnated with us so that he could take our pain. So we wouldn't face it alone. Being a student of Jesus means I cannot hide from painful realities because he did not hide from the painful reality of my world. Next, take time to grieve. Jesus wept. Grieve that there are people who have lost family members to COVID. Grieve that there are people who have been quarantined alone for months. Grieve that unarmed people are executed with no regard for their lives. Weep. Sit in the pain of this reality. Spend some time mourning for this. That, the, that things are this way and that they shouldn't be this way. Um, I thought it was interesting. There were several video games, and uh, I mean, I love games and uh, things that were being announced this week and uh, different online conferences and conventions that all said, no, we're pausing this week because there's an important conversation happening, and we don't want to be a distraction to take people's attention off what's happening. I thought that was really interesting because so often, immediately what I want to do, my natural response when I see something painful or difficult, something that's so horrific I can't stand to face it, I want to go distract myself with something else. And so I, I turn to go to some of these um, online videos or uh, conventions and things that I knew were happening, and when I went to their page, they were like, no, no, we're not doing anything this week, because we don't want you to be distracted from the conversation that's happening. That's exactly what the Bible says. That we shouldn't run from the reality, but we should face it. We should do something about it. Finally, Jesus wanted to bring peace. You see here at the end of the passage, he says, Oh, if you only knew that it was I, it was God showing up to visit you. If you only did things my way, you learned to become a student of the way that I lived and loved. Rome wouldn't destroy you. He wanted peace. But he knew that the religious leaders were rejecting him and his way of life that he was offering. And as a result, they were heading to a conflict with Rome that would ultimately destroy them. Peace doesn't mean we want things to go back to how they were before we were forced to realize how bad things were. Peace means we want to take a step to reach a new future that's better than where we started from. There can be no final, no lasting, no eternal peace without Jesus. Laws won't fix things. Education won't fix things. What we need is Jesus. Now, there's important steps in all those. There's laws that can be passed and education that needs to be done. But at the end of the day, there will be no peace until people love their neighbor like Jesus commanded. When we love our neighbor like we love ourselves as Jesus teaches, that's when communities and cultures and cities and countries change. His way of life that he invites us to experience us calls us to love people, not to hate. The way of Jesus dismantles our ways of thinking, our internal, sometimes subconscious prejudices. Without Jesus, grief is a cul-de-sac that leads to despair. With Jesus, grief always turns to hope and to blessing. 
I believe that the answer to the deepest problems in our world, in our country, is Jesus. I believe that the world would be a better place if everyone lived and loved like Jesus. And so yes, I'm moved, I'm grieved, I'm upset about many things in our country, but I think the answer is to share with people about how good the way of Jesus is. To introduce people into the way that he acted, the way that he behaved, and the way that he invites everyone to come and experience the love of Yahweh. When we live in a community of love, it's easy to love others, even people who don't look like us, talk like us, vote like us, think like us, believe like us. You become a person of love when you encounter a God of love.